Encounter Church, how you doing? It is good to see you. So good to be in church with you. We are continuing in our series on the book of Philippians. So if you brought a Bible, if you have a phone, turn it on, open it up. If you don't have one of those, it's okay. We'll have the passages from the scripture on the screen. And we're jumping in right away, talking about on brand. Let's talk about sports. Uh, any sports fans? One, okay. Gosh. Uh, are there any sports fans? Okay. Even if you just want me to feel better, say yes. Uh, I, I know what you're thinking. Gosh, that guy looks athletic. And you're right. Why are you laughing so much? Uh, I grew up in what somebody would call like an artsy house. But I grew up loving sports. I played soccer in high school. I was cut from my freshman basketball team just like Michael Jordan, so we have that in common. But I grew up playing basketball in the driveway, like trying to pretend I was going to make the game-winning shot, and just loved what sports did. But professional sports brands in America, man, the power to bring people together, to inspire people, it's amazing. The other side of that, it is big, big business. The annual revenue for sports, professional sports, Last year was about $80 billion in the United States. And uh, NFL broadcast deal just this last March was $113 billion. Uh, mer mer merchandise uh, contracts, things like shoes and jerseys, all that stuff. Every year is becoming more and more of a business. And it's changing the landscape of sports. Even things like you know, amateur athletics, college athletics, you talk about International Olympics Committee scandals and the World Cup stuff, all of that. Man, sports can bring people together, but it is a powerful, powerful force of monetizing this power for inspiration. And I see the benefit and the good side of it. Like I'm trying to teach my kids, even though I'm artsy, trying to teach my kids the value of Sports, so we, you know, we've done soccer and baseball, and I think the activity and the discipline and the camaraderie is fantastic. But I think they, they've got a lot; <laughs> they've got an uphill climb as far as like being pretty dedicated to sports. A couple, maybe like a year and a half ago, my older two kids were getting ready for soccer, they're getting all their stuff together, and I shouted from the other room because I thought we were going to be late. I'm like, "Hey, you got to! We're going to be late for soccer rehearsal." And you guys, it's not called rehearsal. Uh, and my, my son reminds me of that all the time. Dad, it's soccer practice. And, but I love the power of sports to bring people together. And I think we all look for things like that, whether it's sports or clubs or gatherings. We all want to be connected. And in his book called Tribes, Seth Godin says, human beings can't help it. We need to belong. One of the most powerful of our survival mechanisms is to be a part of a tribe, to contribute to and take from a group of like-minded people. The idea of tribes, the idea of connecting to people like ourselves, and I think it's with that kind of thinking, that kind of connection with people in mind that Paul addresses some things to the church in Philippi. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. But our citizenship 
is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. A couple things, as over the last few weeks we're talking about Philippians, we've given a little bit of the context of Paul writing to this growing early gathering of people whose lives have been radically changed by who Jesus is. And we've learned more about the context of these individuals in the city of Rome. Just, just to kind of recap, Philippi is in modern-day Greece, and it was a Roman colony. And the Roman Empire, at certain military zones throughout the world, set up these strategic colonies like at, on highways and mountain passes where armies uh, could defend against oncoming invasions. And citizens in those colonies were primary, primarily ex-military. If they served in a colony for about 21 years, they were able to gain full citizenship as a Roman citizen and all the benefits that were connected to that. And a significant distinction of these colonies was that they remained a part of Rome wherever they were in the world. In colonies in modern-day England, France, Spain, Romania, Lebanon, Israel, Greece, these, they all maintained the customs and the morals of Rome. People dressed like Romans, and they never forgot that they were citizens of Rome first. Because of all the benefits that were provided, it was their key identifier. They found incredible pride in the, in the idea that they were Roman citizens. And to these Philippian Christians, Paul gives a new label. He gives a new revolutionary way, a new citizenship, that they are citizens of Jesus. They are citizens of heaven. And that is taking precedence over who they were as citizens of Rome. Paul's saying, Jesus is your citizenship. Jesus is your citizenship. citizenship. He is more powerful than Rome. He is more worthy than Caesar. Your value is no longer your heritage as a Roman citizen. Your value is found in your new savior, your new king, and your new citizenship. And everyone would understand the implications of a citizenship that is found in Christ in heaven because it was just such a common thing for them. And for us, there's a couple implications that I think are significant. The first is that heaven is our identity. Can you say identity? Say it one more time. Say heaven is our identity. Oh, man, it sounds so good to hear you talk. I love it. Uh, even... Before junior high, when we're young, we start to look around and we start to figure out who we are, who we're going to be. And we start to sort out our identity. We look at the athletes, the brainy kids, the theater kids, the get into trouble kids, and you look at how you fit into those categories. Who likes and doesn't like what? Who likes and doesn't like who, who dresses like what, who eats what, who goes to where, we, who listens to what and watches what. And we start to put these things together. And when we're younger, these things help define us. In this book by David Brenner, The Gift of Being Yourself, The Sacred Call to Self-Discovery, it's an incredible book about identity in Jesus Christ. He says, our identity is who we experience ourselves to be. And in our development, we, our identities are often created, right? They're built over time, and they're built on our desire to receive 
validation and to connect with other people and even to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves safe. When I was younger, man, I think there were seasons when I was growing up that there was a lot of tension in my house. And in my youth, what I tried to do was to alleviate that tension in any way that I could. And so I was a goofball. I I often tried to find ways to make people laugh and to kind of distract from some of the struggles that were happening relationally in our home. And I developed kind of this desire to make people laugh. And it's fascinating to me how that season formed something in me that's still true today. Like I still have a desire to alleviate awkwardness, and but usually by creating more of it. But that's okay. I'll take it. And to help make people laugh, to, to absorb tension. And sometimes we build an identity with things that aren't even still true about ourselves. In short, Brenner says we learn to fake it. Appearing as we think important others want us to be and ignoring evidence to the contrary. Sometimes the parts of the identity we bring with us into adulthood are not even true about us anymore. They might have been valid when we were kids and we outgrew them and sometimes they were never even true in the first place about us at our core. We were given these labels and we didn't know how to change them or we believed things about ourselves that we thought should be true when we were kids, and it stays with us. Uh, My wife, Emily, when she was young, her grandmother, for a birthday or Christmas, I can't remember, gave her a porcelain clown doll. That sentence keeps getting worse. (laughs) She gave her a porcelain clown doll, and it was like, yay big. And Emily, just in her youth, you know, she thought it was great. And she smiled and said, thank you. And, and her grandmother took that cue as a sign of, like, gift-giving success. And so for every birthday and every Christmas for the following years, what did Grandma give my wife? A clown. A terrifying horrible clown. And so she, as she grew up, she had this collection of frightening figures just staring at her while she tries to sleep. She'll talk to you about it after church, I'm sure. She's very well adjusted in spite of it. Because as a kid, the people that she loved thought that she loved this, and she responded accordingly. She starts to grow up and realize, I'm not crazy about all these clowns. And so over the years, she, you know, would give them to people or put them in the recycle bin or whatever. I don't know how she got rid of them. Except for one clown. And that clown, uh, I, I apparently adopted when we got married. It came with us. And here, uh, before I show you a picture of, of a clown similar to the one, uh, you have to promise me something. Please don't look in the eyes of this clown. I, can't, I don't know for sure what might happen, but you might see through you know, layers of time and see yourself as an 80-year-old person. I don't know what will happen, but this is a picture of a clown like it. And it's... It's fine. It was like yay big. And uh, for years, uh, like I discovered it in like a box of our stuff when we were moving in together after we got married. And, um, and over the years, it became a little bit of a thing. We would hide it for each other around the house because that's the kind of relationship that we've got. And so like you would open a cereal box and there would be the clown or, you know, we put it in your car or, you know, in drawers. Sometimes it would be on, on the pillow. Uh, which is terrifying. Uh, And here's the thing. 
for me, that clown represents some things about my story and, and, and maybe about yours. Like, there's these, there's these things about our identity, these things about who we are and, and who we were that are no longer true about us, that we've brought with us into adulthood because we think other people expect that or we thought it needed to be true about us. It reminds me that the, some of these things that are true about our past don't need to be true about our future. You know, I grew up avoiding conflict, trying to make people laugh. And whenever I saw conflict in my home, often it was modeled so unhealthily. And so I really tried to flee from it. I would run from difficult conversations. I mean, to a degree, I still do. And that was a clown that I brought with me because I didn't have categories. I didn't know how to process through the difficulty of, of difficult things. So I would ghost people and I would you know, flee tense moments, but there came a time when I needed to get rid of that scary porcelain clown doll. Maybe you grew up with labels about who people thought you were, and it's time to shed those labels. How you show up socially or, or wounded parts of your identity that you know you need healing from issues with food or unhealthy views of sexuality, how you respond in stressful moments. Paul, when he writes to the church in Romans, said that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that means to exchange unhealthy thinking through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we want to think that all of that was just true about growing up, like the things that we search for in identity, they kind of fade as we're like more mature. But I don't, I don't think it's true. I think as adults, every day we say to the world, like, this is my brand. This is who I am. This is how I want to be seen. And that junior high instinct to figure out how we show ourselves to the world, it becomes just a little bit more subtle. I think we trick ourselves into thinking that it's a little bit more sophisticated. These categories like I work here and I live here, I drive this, I go here, I don't go there. And sometimes there's this, there's this pride about who we show ourselves to the world and how we show ourselves to the world. But a citizen of heaven is defined not by the external or the peripheral, but by the internal and by what Christ has done to give us citizenship in heaven. This is what David Brenner says. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Heaven is our identity. Heaven is our identity. That means Christ defines who you are. Do you believe that? That Christ defines who you are. Nobody else, nobody else gets that privilege. Nobody else gets that job. Christ defines who you are. And this is what he says about you. First John 
Chapter 3, verse 1 says, How amazing that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are God's children. You are not your GPA, your student debt. You are not your credit score or your net worth. You are not the whispers or the texts that you hear behind your back. You are not. You are not your biggest regret or your greatest fear. You are who God says you are. And that, that is good news. Second Corinthians, Paul says this to the church. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Amen. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership upon us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You are who Christ says you are. You are what God speaks over you. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that God rejoices over you. He sings over you. Those are promises that God will keep in Jesus in your life. So heaven is our identity. Second thing, heaven is our priority. Say priority. I love it. As citizens of heaven, Jesus is our highest allegiance. As citizens of heaven, our highest allegiance is the name of Christ. Every other identification, category, classification, every other connection submits itself to the priority of heaven. That means the tribes and the sports teams and the loyalties and hobbies and preferences. That means our likes and our dislikes, our ideologies. And our influences, they are secondary. They're secondary to who we are as citizens of heaven. The implications to this are pretty staggering. I've heard Dirk talk about this before, this idea that as citizens of of heaven, we have more in common with other citizens of heaven who are not necessarily like like us, but they share something that, that can't be taken away. This idea that citizens of heaven, that that is our primary allegiance, that means it doesn't matter what I think or how I vote. If there is another Christian who in their conscious, uh, in their heart, in the conviction of their heart, vote a different way, that actually means I have more in common with the person who votes differently than me and who, who claims to follow Jesus than I do with someone who, who votes like me or in my political party. That means someone who is outside of my tax bracket, who follows Christ but doesn't live like I do, I have more in common with them than my neighbor or someone in the same income bracket. That's staggering. That means if I go to the hills of North Dakota or the slums of Nairobi, or the skyscrapers of Hong Kong, and find someone who follows Christ, that I have more in common with them than someone in Grand Rapids who doesn't follow Jesus. So heaven is a priority, and it is also our hope. I mean, it's true now. Like, it's not saying that someday we'll be citizens We are citizens now. That's something that we can claim today. And yet, heaven is our destiny. We look towards heaven knowing that the healing of 
all things is coming to pass with the new heaven and the new earth. Earth, We live with the gravity of this destiny pulling us towards the future. And, and this, should, this should be an immense encouragement. That someday, that someday the things that keep us up at night The things we look back at with immense regret and pain. The parts of ourselves that we can't quite reconcile. That heaven is coming. That Jesus has promised to restore us. That we have a view of heaven that's Staying in the future, but it is guiding our present in very, very powerful ways. And sometimes it's, I mean, let's be honest, it's very difficult to live that way, to live with that confidence, to live with that view of the future that impacts the way we walk today. And historically, there have been cultures that have an easier time living with a, a heavenly hope. And there's some cultures that really struggle with that view. And I think, if I'm honest, I would assume that cultures that have an easier time seeing heaven as a hope and living with that future reality in mind would be like incredibly well-educated cultures or cultures with historical legacies of Christ following. And that, that's actually often not the case. Cultures that often live with a view of heaven guiding their everyday are often cultures that have gone through incredible suffering and pain. Cultures that have experienced injustice. They have historically had a stronger view of the glories of heaven over cultures of influence and affluence and privilege and power. Most clearly because there was a desperate need for the rescuing power of Christ. And there are seasons in my life that I do not live with a view of heaven as a hope. Because my life is too comfortable. Because I probably don't need saving from that many things. Because in God's provision for me, I lose sight of my need for God. Maybe that happens to you as well. And when we go through seasons like that, when we've lost our view of heaven as our hope and heaven as our priority, perhaps life has just gotten a little too comfortable. We've lost a sense of gratitude. Or maybe we've settled for lesser allegiances. Maybe we've taken the idea that we are citizens of heaven and we've become citizens of something else. We've become citizens of our workplace. We've become citizens of our friendship group. Maybe we've become citizens of our ability to perform and to work and to protect ourselves. And we've settled for lesser allegiances. But 
But the beautiful thing about claiming citizenship in heaven is that we are always aware of the grace of Jesus. That yes, we have a future hope. And that hope impacts every morning when we wake up. Every morning. The idea that we are a part of an unshakable citizenship. Hebrews 12 says this. I want to read it twice to you. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I want to read this over you, but I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you stand up quietly? And as you stand, I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. And for those of us that have accepted this citizenship that Jesus offers, I'm going to ask you to reflect on a couple things. I want you to think about the scary clowns. I want you to think about the things that you've brought with you into adulthood that no longer need to be true about who you are. The things that you carry that aren't a part of your identity, they don't need to be a part of who Christ says you are. And I also want you to think about where you settle for lesser allegiances. Where you're trading your citizenship in heaven in for a citizenship of something far less significant. And I ask, Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you challenge? Would you comfort? Would we not miss what you're saying to us? And this is what Paul says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. So worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. What is God speaking over you? How is he encouraging you? How is he reminding you of his love? What is he saying? That doesn't need to be true anymore. You do not need to bring that with you out of this room. Leave that doll, that scary doll in the past and hear the words of Christ saying, I love you, I sing over you, I have claimed you as my own. You are citizens of heaven. You're not citizens of shame. You're not citizens of doubt. You're not citizens of regret. You are citizens of heaven. And if you carry that shame, if you carry that fear, if you carry those anxiety of the mounting bills or the anxiety over work demands. If you're aware of how easily discouraged you are because you've lost a glimpse of hope. If the weight of loneliness just feels crushing. Christ says, come, be my citizen. Let go of those things. It doesn't mean that those things are not true anymore, but you can claim a higher allegiance. You can trust that the ways of heaven can be true in your life today as you live towards the hope of a future.
restoration, restoration that Jesus is redeeming the broken parts of you. So Jesus, we pray. We pray in your name alone, claiming your citizenship. We claim your authority, Father, for the parts of our identities that no longer are true about us, for the labels that no longer need to be claimed because we claim what you say we are. And Jesus, we pray for the struggles in this room today that people would release those in light of the perspective that we have as citizens of heaven. But we are citizens of heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.